millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to delve deeper into the public policy challenges facing Australia and the region. I'm Martin Pierce. We're here at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy in Canberra, the region's leading school of public policy. You can find out more about Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au. Today, we're taking a look at a country which, despite being a very close neighbour of Australia, doesn't usually get too much attention from the mainstream media. But you're going to see it in the news a lot this week, and that's because after months of political stalemate and electoral wrangling, it has a new Prime Minister. That country is Timor-Leste, and the new Prime Minister is Tawamatan Ruak. And as you'll hear from the panel discussion coming up, which was recorded yesterday prior to the official announcement of the new Prime Minister, he's a man who will have a lot on his plate in the months and years ahead. For the podcast, we are chatting to a fantastic lineup of experts who will be speaking at the 2018 Timor-Leste Update, a two-day conference here at the Australian National University, which is happening on Thursday and Friday this week. Chatting with us is Dr. Sue Ingram, who is an Honorary Senior Policy Fellow at the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific. Sue has wide experience in public policy, peacebuilding and international development, including senior appointments in UN peacekeeping missions in Timor-Leste, both before and after independence. We've also got Professor Michael Leach from Swinburne University of Technology. Michael teaches international relations, comparative politics, and the politics of the Pacific. He's also published widely on the politics of Timor-Leste and is a founder of the Timor-Leste Studies Association. And our third guest is Dr. Sarah Niner from Monash University. Sarah is an interdisciplinary researcher and a lecturer in anthropology. She's an expert in the field of gender and international development with a particular interest in those issues in the post-conflict environment of Timor-Leste. And I've been saying our guests and not my guests because joining today's discussion is longtime podcast host Professor Sharon Bessel from Crawford School, who I'm delighted to have with me. Don't forget, we would love to hear your thoughts on anything we talk about today. You can send in your questions, your comments, or any suggestions for future episodes to podcast at policyforum.net. Alternatively, you can always share your thoughts with us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. But for now, let's turn to Timor Leste. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a very distinguished panel helping us look at the politics and policy of Timor-Leste. I'd like to welcome Professor Michael Leach. Hello, Michael. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, Dr. Sue Ingram, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And Dr. Sarah Niner, thank you for coming along. 
pleasure. Thank you. And of course, I'm joined by my regular pod co-host, Sharon Bessel. Hello, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Martin. I'm really well. Great to be here today. So today we're talking all things Timor-Leste, and it's a country with a fairly tumultuous recent history. Since its first independent elections in 2001, its democracy has been fragile with outbreaks of violence, particularly around the 2007 elections. And in recent years, we've seen a government that has been sort of plagued by political paralysis, and the country has had two elections in the last 12 months. We are hearing reports that the new Prime Minister will be Tor Matan Ruak. How's my pronunciation there, Sue? Good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, uh, and that uh, he will have to preside over a fairly sort of ragtag group of some strange political bedfellows that make up the Change for Progress Alliance, which is abbreviated to AMP, AMP. Uh, on top of that, he'll also have to deal with a president who is from the opposition party and has the power to veto important aspects of the prime minister's agenda. So given this history, um, just how stable is Timor-Leste's political system right now? Perhaps, Michael, if I could start Well, I mean, uh, what we're looking at now is, I think, the end of a period of some uncertainty and instability. What we had after the July election last year was a minority government, a fretland minority government. They ended up with the most seats but it's a proportional system. <clears throat> they had one more seat than the CNRT. That was a bit of a surprise result. But they were not able to get a majority uh, in the parliament. So though they were installed by the president in a semi-presidential system, a government is invested in two ways, firstly by the president, but then they must pass their program in the parliament, so they've got to have parliamentary support, which, of course, we understand from our system as well. They were able to do the first but not the second. Uh, so they had one uh, party in alliance and controlled 30 seats, but a majority in the Timorese parliament is 33. And that government uh, eventually fell, did not pass did not pass its program. And um, as a result, there was another early election um, just this May. So uh, now there is a government with a full majority. And so things are probably going to be more settled from here on in. So does that mean that the country's political system is a bit more stable and is it robust enough to cope with a president from one party and a parliament dominated by... Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, it's the first time uh, since independence was restored in 2002 that we're going to have a, situ- a situation of cohabitation, which is the French term for when you've got a president from one party and the prime minister from another. Uh, I've never really had that in, in Timor-Leste because there's been independent presidents up till now, but Luolo is a Fretland president and, uh, and now... Now uh, sits unlike last year, where the minority government was Fretland with an AMP um, uh, government with a majority, who are definitely the opposition. Uh, for, well, he represents the opposition, the president, in, in, in a sense. So the president is, uh, of course, representing the country in that role uh, at one level, but is very much from Fretland. So now we get to see what cohabitation looks like for the first time in the East Timorese context. Now we do get to see uh, the full suite of powers that a president actually has under the constitution. We haven't seen those before because they haven't been called upon by the situation. Some people, um, unwisely in my opinion, declared um, that East Timor was a parliamentary republic about a decade ago looking at the constitution, but it's not. It's a semi-presidency and we're about to find out exactly what the president's powers are in that semi-presidential context. But um, um, certainly the powers of the president in East Timor are um, rather weaker than a place like France. We know that. But we're going to find out just how, what sort of powers they really do have, what sort of vetoes can be put into place, how they can be overturned by the parliament and the exact uh, 
breadth, I suppose, of, of the powers of the president will, will now find out. It's going to be interesting. So some very interesting times ahead and a little bit later I'll pick your brains about what your predictions for how all of this might play out. But Sue, perhaps if if I could turn to you, the elections that Michael talked about earlier this year saw a strong turnout without any major incidents. Is that a sign that Timor-Leste's democracy has moved on from the sort of political violence that characterised earlier elections? I think so. And I think there was very much a context for the violence we saw in the past. In 2007, there was um, a certain amount of violence around the election in the lead up, but more significantly after the election. And that was very much in the context of uh, some uncertainty about uh, who was going to be called on to be prime minister, whether it would be the uh, leader of the party who had a plurality of votes, or whether it was going to be the leader of an alliance of parties stitched up very quickly after the election results came out. And there was a fair amount of angst around that, how it played out. Uh, Progressively, Uh, the level of violence around the elections has diminished. Uh, It was much lower in 2012 and and almost insignificant in in 2017. And again, around this election, almost no, no violence. I think there is a real maturity amongst the electorate in Timor, and also a real weariness about political violence, and uh, and when the uh, the elephants begin to uh, to rage in the fields, I think people want a peaceful polity. I think that that shift that you talk about, Sue, towards a, a more peaceful politics or a more peaceful form of politics, is it gives us such a cause for optimism. But I did want to explore this issue of violence in a little bit more detail. And Sarah, to hear from you, um, particularly in relationship to the, the amazing research that you've done, where you've referred to Timor Leste as a militarised masculinity or having a militarised masculinity. Um, and I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on how that relates not just to the political violence that we've seen in the past, but also to gender-based violence. So can you just tell us a, a little more about what you found through your research when we think about violence through the lens of gender? Yep. Um, some of this, some of the insights that I have about this idea of there being a, militari- a dominant sort of militarised masculinity in Timor is because I wrote the biography of the most dominant <laughs> male in Timor, Shenanigals Mao, and I, I really did see the political process through his agency, I guess, and uh, the birth of the nation, really, with him as the, the primary leader. Um, and he is an old soldier and he has gone through a ter- you know, terrible 24 years of war, as you know, a, a lot of people have in Timor. Um, and those old soldiers, sometimes I say to people in Australia, it's a bit like the RSL running the country after the Second World War. So you've got people that have been traumatised and damaged, and and but people who are incredibly respected by their people for winning the nation on their behalf and for the suffering that they undertook during the war. So you've got a very dominant group of men running the country who have gone through these terrible um, situations, um, whose tempers and patience aren't always uh, long. Um, so we've seen situations like 2006 when they, there was some real headbutting going on and it, it led to some terrible violence that affected the whole country and really set national development back a, lot, a long, long way. Um, these men are still dominant and they're, they're 
their interactions and their, their sort of conflict with each other has again set the country back another year with Fretland being in charge but not being able to rule, no compromise being able to be reached in the parliament. So we see ourselves like a year down the track having a new election, a new government, all that sort of thing. The economy, I've, I looked at some economic figures, the economy's just gone straight down in this period because the budget wasn't passed, money wasn't being spent. Um, all that sort of stuff. So we can see the conflict between this old generation of men who went through the war um, really holding the country back. And this sort of the level of, of conflict between them also affecting uh, the, the society and the level of gender-based violence that also occurs in, 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 in private uh, we can see, and I, I was interested to bring this up, that on the provisional list of who is going to be the government ministers, uh, tomorrow I think we see a final list, but the Minister of Health is a man that has been charged with really serious domestic violence charges. And it's proposed that he be the Minister of Health and he has been the Minister of Health in the past. And I think this just shows you the attitude amongst these senior men to domestic violence. And it's not a good... It's, it's not a good um, attitude. It's, it's a, it it's a, has a huge amount of tolerance for violence in the home. It's seen as a private matter. It's up to... Uh, the family to deal with, and often women get a really raw door, a deal on this, not just in the in the home, in informal justice, in customary justice systems, but in the formal justice system as well. No, hardly any men ever get sent to jail for domestic violence. It's all suspended sentences. JSMP has watched this. So I think this dominance of, of the male and the, the sort of conflict in the political sphere is reflected in attitudes to to violence in the private sphere as well. It also means that women get a, a really hard time in the parliament and as political leaders as well. Are those issues debated within the society, Sarah? You know, you've said that um, there's an acceptance amongst the political leadership, the, the male political leadership particularly, of um, violence against women and domestic violence. But is there debate within society? Is there a pushback at the society mm, level against that violence? There's a huge amount of debate about domestic violence. In fact, we had a little discussion about it on Facebook yesterday. And... Lots of people chip in, men and women, and saying this is not our culture. Lots of people say, excuse it, oh, it's Timmy's culture to do that. Um, men as much as women chip in and say that is not our culture. That's violence. Perhaps also a legacy of the war and the conflict that we, you know, that we've, the country's gone through. There's a huge debate about this and there is a super strong uh, women's movement in Timor. And these women are not quiet on this issue at all. Um, I looked back at some of the the fallout from uh, the proposed Minister of Health's domestic violence charges back in 2001, and the women's movement was there at the time shouting out very loud that it wasn't acceptable. Um, so the women in the women's movement have gone through the war as well. They're very strong women. Um, so th there's a huge debate. In fact, I, it's one of the big debates in Timor's society. But there is, as I said, a huge tolerance for it, um, partly because of the war, um, but there is a general tolerance for violence, not just domestic, but 
public violence as well, um, which you often find in post-conflict societies. Sarah, just to go a little bit further on, on issues of gender and relating them to political representation particularly, you know, Timor-Leste is always held up as an example of the success that can be achieved through quotas. And I think we were at about 38% um, a little while back. Those, those figures have decreased, but still a relatively high proportion of women in parliament at the national level because of the quotas. But at the village level, I think village heads sit at around 2%. So we see a, a difference between the national and the local levels. How would you rate the success of quotas, not just numerically, but in terms of the influence of women and of, of more diverse voices um, within the political sphere? So quota systems definitely have to happen to change systems and to change them quickly. Um, at the rate change happens from sort of dominant male uh, political systems to female, it's so slow you'd be looking at kind of 200 years before anything mm-hmm. changed substantially. So the quota system is excellent. It's got 38% of women in parliament. But it was a quantitative victory rather than a qualitative one, I think. So the And there's all sorts of programs in place to give women more confidence to have more of a voice in parliament. But at the moment, they are really, uh, I think, manipulated by the male political leadership of their political parties and they vote along political lines rather than gender lines, largely. Um, So there's a shift, there's a qualitative shift that has to happen in women's in, in women's political voices and having space in parliament. Um, and that's the longer process. We've got the, the quota process, which, you know, you definitely do have to change the laws to, to get changes like the domestic violence law, but then there has to be a more qualitative sort of shift in social attitudes which will allow these, the, you know, women to come up in these systems. And there there are some things in place to get that to happen at the local council level, but... It's, it's happening very slowly there. And, and finally, on the gender issue, Sarah, how much do those challenges relate to personality politics? You know, you've talked about the old soldiers and the respect that those people mm-hmm. have because of the role they played in bringing about independence. Um, and so we do see personality politics being very, uh, very strong in Timor-Leste. How much is that a factor in shaping the gendered nature of politics and the space for women to engage in politics? Well, it's a big factor because those the, those soldiers like Shanana Guzmao, um, they have big personalities and they really are big fish in that in that small pond of of Timor, um, just a million a million and a little bit you know amount of people, so they are big fish, um, and they are very very dominant and, and domineering really, uh, and it, it's it's going to be a generational shift that will have to happen but there's some really strong women there's a there's a new uh, educated elite coming up in Timor where the women are very strong um, lots of them have been educated here in Australia I'm actually going up to give some training to some in a couple of months the alumni women that have studied in Australia on on Australian government scholarships are finding it really hard to break through the glass ceiling there in a lot of their careers and they've identified that that's a problem for them and they they want some uh, you know some action taken so I think the the next generation, is is very different in their attitudes. The women that fought with those men in the struggle really did have to take a back seat to them and that's the role that they've accepted 
Um, and I think it's hard for them to, to break those moulds. But I really think the next generation is going to do something very different. So we've spoken about political violence and gender and personality-driven politics, and shortly I want to talk about the country's economics. But are there any other major challenges facing the new government when it comes to delivering stable governance and good public policy? Perhaps, Michael, if I can turn to you first. Yeah, I mean, the the major agenda that's been on hold in various ways for a decade is decentralisation in Timor-Leste. One of the uh, over the cross-spectrum issues is the large number of rural urban migrants in Timor. That that leads to higher unemployment in the cities, away from the traditional sources of authority and power in the districts, um, away from livelihoods in the districts, which would generally be subsistence agriculture, where um, young people are not so governed by the traditional laws and customary mores. And it does lead to um, youth unemployment, it leads to social problems, and it leads to political instability, and this is known around the world. So if you uh, have a high level of rural urban migration and you can't provide jobs for those people, that associates very strongly with political instability in the long run. So the cure to that is is political decentralisation and regional development. And unfortunately, though there's been different ideas about that for about a decade, it's always been on hold and governance in Timor-Leste remains very centralised from Delhi and the amount of deconcentration, relatively small. There's been a couple of good programs in that area, but that's the big challenge for any government, whether it was this government or the last government, had it been fully installed, which of course it wasn't, it would have been the same. It's not about which, which government is in power. This is, a, this is an issue for the whole country uh, going forward, regional development and the kind of political arrangements to sustain that, the political decentralisation. Decentralisation and rural migration is an issue for a lot of countries around the region. So just how bad is the problem in Timor-Leste? Look, it's not nearly as bad as, say, um, Papua New Guinea. No, just to place it in context, or, or even Solomon Islands. Um, but there is there was a huge influx of population uh, after the Untayat period into Delhi. In the late Indonesian era, There was this was already starting. Uh, obviously, the UN was like... Uh, a bit of a honeypot. A lot of people came in. There was a lot of money flying around. Um, that did cause uh, social problems in, in Delhi and it did, you know, associate with high levels of unemployment and that sort of thing. So um, when the UN departed in 2005, this was an understated context to the crisis of 2006, was the economy of Delhi deflated with, uh, with the departure of the, the peacekeepers. And uh, that uh, was one of the slow burn triggers for that whole crisis of 2006 that everyone knows about, I always thought that was an under kind of uh, emphasised origin of the dispute, of the uh, crisis itself. So have you seen any signs from the new government that, that the, what you're talking about, that decentralisation is one of those issues that they're keen to take? Yes, look, there's always, that'll be in the government program. It's always in the government program, but it often just stays in the government program. Um, there's been a couple of good um, programs of recent times. For example, the one that went to Sukus, which are like the, the sort of um, groups of villages around the country, and they got to decide on the one thing that was the most important development that they wanted in their local area. That was a really good uh, program. Uh, its particular name eludes me. But there are a couple of examples like that which were really good. But what hasn't happened is political decentralisation. Municipalisation is uh, an idea that is yet to be followed through with and the devolution of those sort of funds and decision-making to the local area will lead to the sort of developments that will keep people, young people, in those other parts of, um, of Timor-Leste. What about you, Sue? Any other thoughts in terms of major challenges facing the new government when it comes to sort of delivering good public policy? Yeah, I guess one of the things that's 
I see as high on the list is um, really the fiscal strategy of the government, um, and that's how much it's going to spend and also where it's going to spend. Um, you've seen a massive increase in public expenditure over the last decade. There was um, the first spike came after the crisis in 2006, the second big spike um, after the um, attempted uh, killing of uh, the then President José Ramazorta in 2008. And over that period, public expenditure rose from about 200 million, about 150 million, up to uh, in 2016, uh, almost um, 1.8 billion. And this has been uh, public expenditure has been funded through the petroleum fund, uh, a sovereign wealth fund, also through borrowings. There's been a lot of controversy about where the government has invested, uh, the balance between um, basically programs that develop human capital, you know, expenditure in agriculture, education and health, and expenditure on really big ticket infrastructure programs that are soaking up hundreds of millions of dollars each year. And that's been a source of tension, in fact, between the two big political figures that we see in the new government, or we expect to see prominent at the top of the new government, Tal Matanruak, the, uh, who was president, uh, and Shanana Gushmao, who has been president and prime minister. Taur has always been very much about uh, social investment in the countryside, very much focused on the needs of the people, and Shanana very much focused on a nationalistic program of big public expenditure investment to build the infrastructure base for economic growth and to project Timor into a middle-income country. So two very different visions of Timor, but you need to set that against the reality of Timor, which is that 70% plus of the population lives in the countryside, lives by subsistence agriculture, and where levels of malnutrition are amongst and, and stunting are amongst the highest in the world. So you still have an impoverished rural population. And, uh, you know, at the moment, the tide isn't raising all the boats. So two very different agendas that are likely to play out uh, in the life of the current government, the new government. And uh, where you pitch the level of public expenditure is going to be a very significant issue because it's going to be a bit of a contest between fiscal rectitude and um, social stability because there have also been very big investments over the last 10 years in social transfers, social transfers to veterans, to um, um, the elderly, to um, um, single parents. So... uh, any pairing back of public expenditure is going to be very difficult and very sensitive. But arguably, the current level of expenditure can't can't continue. I mean, re- reports over the last eight eight months from the IMF and from the World Bank have warned that Timor-Leste could be heading towards a, quote, fiscal cliff. And certainly the numbers you talked about there suggest that there might be there might be a, a degree of truth in that. Do you think that, do you, do you feel confident that, that Timor-Leste can put the policies in place to to pull it back from, from the fiscal cliff? Well, uh, just to provide a bit of context to that first, um, Timor is one of the most oil petroleum dependent countries in the world. I think second only to South Sudan. And in the first early days of independence, um, it very prudently established um, a sovereign wealth fund for its petroleum revenues. And those revenues 
really began to come on stream in in 2005. Um, But over the last decade, we've seen the level of of withdrawals from the Petroleum Fund uh, consistently exceed the limit on uh, withdrawals that was set by legislation. And so each time a budget goes forward, Parliament eases up on those restrictions. And so the um, Petroleum Fund is being fairly rapidly depleted and there's not much new revenue going in because the existing um, active oil fields are, are very much declining in their productivity and it will be a considerable time before the uh, even with the uh, uh, the Maritime Boundary Treaty being signed, it will be a considerable time before um, uh, the new oil revenues come on stream. So the, the warning notes about the level of public expenditure have been building up for some years now. A very active NGO, advocacy NGO, Lahamutuk in Timor, has been talking about this uh, uh, looming financial fiscal problem for a long time. But it's striking that, as you say, in the last uh, several months, both the IMF and the World Bank in in reports on Timor's economy have actually used the language fiscal cliff, which is, and, you know, very strong language for, for an international financial institution to use. So clearly the indicators are very troubling. Uh, The message is curtail public expenditure, uh, broaden the revenue base, diversify the economy. These are all huge challenges. Uh, So I'm not going to predict whether it's going to happen or not, but I'm going to say it's a very challenging situation for a new government to find itself in. I just wanted to ask a a little about where um, generational politics fit into the debates that are being that are being had, um, Michael, you talked about you know the the challenges of meeting the expectations of young people mm-hmm. and the issues around migration from rural to urban areas. So you were talking about those competing visions of what Timor Leste might be in the future, um, but they appear to be driven by the older generation. How much space is selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. It's there for the new generation, the new generation that Sarah talked about quite optimistically, to actually come through and reshape politics in Timor-Leste. Are there voices of the younger generation in politics formally or informally at the moment. The Timorese party structure means, gives a lot of power to the party leaders and, and as others, as, as Sue and Sarah have explained, they're, um, they're dominated by older generation figures. <clears throat> and it's just the, the nature of the political system there with the closed list party system makes them very powerful figures. That said, there is, um, I've done focus groups recently in, in Dili with, uh, with younger um, Timorese politicians but also just younger voters. 
and they do have different attitudes. Some of the legitimacy from the resistance era isn't quite as strong a theme for the for the younger voters who weren't there and don't remember those times before 1999. Uh, some of them are more focused on other forms of legitimacy around performance-based legitimacy than they are about um, who did what in the resistance era, which I think is an inevitable trajectory in a country like East Timor that eventually other performance-based criteria will become more and more important. The old generational gap used to be between those people who were brought up under Indonesia and those who were brought up under Portugal. And in the early 2000s, it was very much the politics was about that and there was issues of language and official language involved. Now there's a third and much, much larger generation that's, that is making that one a lot less relevant, uh, which is the, uh, the generation uh, even below that. Who, uh, who actually don't remember the Indonesian occupation. Um, the median age of Timor is 18.9, and it's about that long since 1999. So there is half the population who were not there when the last Indonesian left East Timor. Half. It's amazing. Uh, whereas in Australia, that median age would be 38. You know, it's twice as much. So you see what a young population that is and how important those, the politics are going to be. We're already seeing some changes in the party system with a party like Kunto coming along that's clearly about younger voters. And you can vote at 17 in Timor-Leste. So you see that um, they're going to be an increasingly important part of, uh, of that mix going forward. Yeah, just um, adding to that, I think Michael gave the statistic of uh, the median age, and uh, so you've got this young cohort of people coming through. It's a very significant youth bulge, and they are looking at their future prospects. And, you know, what does the labour market offer them? I think there's um, about one place for every young 40 young people entering the labour market. It's a, a frightening statistic. Um, many of them have um, tertiary education uh, from local universities, and there's a plethora of local universities. But what do those university degrees really offer them? They've invested a lot of money because we're talking about private universities, so they've paid a lot up front for education. But does it give them a place in the labour market? Does it give them the opportunity to earn money? Does it give them the opportunity to marry, have children, get on with their lives? And it's that level of potential pent-up disaffection that are, you know, is potentially quite destabilising. So you know, is, um, is the economy, uh, our opportunities through government going to open up for them uh, that will give them a space to, to achieve the life fulfilment that they're they're seeking. Their their aspirations are high, they're politically sophisticated in many cases, but what will their society and their their government provide for them to to allow them to achieve their potential? That's the real challenge. Mm. Um, I was reading some of the commentary on the last national survey and they did do a big uh, investigation with younger people and there were some interesting results from that. And they are, like Sue said, really looking for opportunities and they're really not there for them, um, largely. Um, but also some really interesting uh, results around the incredible respect they have for their own culture and how proud of their culture they are. And I think it's a reason the party Kunto's done so well because it, it was representing that culture. So you've got a really rich cultural uh, heritage there that these uh, that these younger people are drawing on and really proud of, um, which, which sort of bodes well, I think. Um, but there really isn't a lot of opportunities for them going forward, and I think this government. Uh, 
that's going to be announced tomorrow has got this incredible opportunity while there's still oil money left to really do something good for that generation um, and for the country. And there was something I wanted to add what Sue was saying about these two competing economic visions of, of Shanana and Taumatan Ruak and the gendered nature of those visions and that the big project kind of infrastructure, it really benefits men and uh, the sort of big projects that men have come along and got the contracts for, often awarded to the veterans who are already on very good pensions. The, the social welfare system in Timor is very gendered um, and I think uh, that really needs to be addressed with much more emphasis on human development, so much more of the money going into health and education and welfare rather than these big infrastructure projects, which, which has an incredibly discriminatory effect on, on half the population. I think for so many countries, these issues around the politics of both gender and generation are absolutely acute, but perhaps nowhere more than, than in Timor-Leste. So uh, watching closely what happens in relation to those issues, I think will be really important going forward. Of course, for people sitting in Australia, we're acutely aware of the ongoing dispute between Australia and Timor-Leste in terms of the, the maritime border. Um, that dispute has now or has very recently been resolved. Um, how does that fit into the picture going forward? We've talked um, both about the, the possibilities for optimism, but also perhaps the, the possibilities for pessimism. Does the, the resolution of that dispute around the border give us more or less cause for optimism. Michael, what, what do you think? I, I think more, uh, maybe guarded optimism um, to some degree. Uh, obviously, the relationship between Australia and Timor-Leste has improved enormously. Uh, there have been no ministerial visits between uh, the close two close neighbours since 2013. That's an extraordinary statistic. Uh, that's a sign of how bad the relationship had become. Uh, this latest deal, which was fostered by the UN um, Convention on the Law of the Sea conciliation process, first time it's ever been used, has now put that issue to rest. There is a, a, a full agreement between the two countries uh, about a, a future maritime boundary and the division of uh, royalties from the Greater Sunrise Field and, and the existing fields. Um, those existing fields are about to run out of money, of course. So there's not a lot of money there for East Timor, but the Greater Sunrise, which is yet to be developed, uh, promises a, a lot. So those issues between the two states are sort of now resolved, but there is one legacy issue, which is about where the pipeline would go, and that's much more of a dispute now between the state of Timor-Leste and the um, joint venture partners. Australia claims to be neutral on this uh, particular question, and it's about whether the oil will be processed in uh, existing facilities in Darwin, which the joint venture partners have generally favour, or on the south coast of Timor, which the Timorese government very much favours and the Australian government uh, says it has a neutral position on this particular question. That is yet to be resolved. That's a huge issue. There will be a different division of royalties depending on whether the pipeline goes to Darwin or to Timor-Leste. If it goes to Darwin, Timor will get 80% of the Greater Sunrise revenues. If it goes to Suai, they'll get 70 because of the increased downstream revenues they will generate. That's a Big issue, as Sarah was saying, it's, it's certainly something that Shinona Guzman is very attached to, this idea of a south coast development corridor for oil and gas and the downstream uh, benefits. It's a, a risky one. Uh, there's something like an estimated $5 billion to be invested in making that work from the Timorese side, and there's some possibility also of uh, sort of cooperation with the Chinese around that 
into the future. We just don't know yet. Um, so some issues there are unresolved and some, uh, some are, are fixed. Certainly the relationship with Australia is back on track. A final question to you all. We've seen two parliamentary elections in the last 12 months. What's your prediction for how long this government will last? Are we going to be back here again in 2019? Sue, perhaps if I can start with you. Yes, look, I'm not going to place any bets on this. Um, There are some obvious fissures that we're looking at. Um, The uh, AMP government, which is governing sorry, as of tomorrow when it's announced, will be governing in its own right um, um, with the other parliamentary parties and coalitions are all in opposition. I must say it was going to be um, two parties and one uh, coalition, but that coalition has already broken down into its three component parties. So it will be five parties in opposition. Um, So the question is the robustness of of AMP and uh, the three parties that have formed to the alliance, which is AMP, were improbable bedfellows. Um, there are significant differences between them. And it's how are those differences going to play out? I think it was striking that um, TMR, Tamatan Ruak, the person who is mooted to be the Prime Minister, said in the lead up to the election that it was... It, was quite challenging getting stitching up the alliance, but they had a common goal, which was to win the election and form government. Well, they've achieved that. So where to from here? What is that government going to look like? And uh, how are the uh, internal tensions going to, to play out? I think it's significant that the three parties that make up the a- AMP, the alliance, have are determined that they are going to have separate parliamentary benches in the parliament, so they won't sit as an alliance, they'll sit as the three component parties. Um, And there are very significant personality and uh, policy differences between the leaders of those three parties. So, as I say, I'm not placing my bets, but uh, as a passionate friend of Timor, I hope this works well over the, the life of the government. Michael, what about you? Are you prepared to uh, place a place a bet for us? Look, I agree with what Sue said. I do think uh, there's one important factor that Sue didn't mention, and that's that Fretland did very well. Uh, obviously, they lost government, but they did very well. They got the biggest swing uh, of any party at the election. They uh, It's the first time their vote has increased significantly since 2007. It, it rose from around the 30 mark where it stalled since 2007 to up more like 30, 35. So it did quite well uh, in the last election, obviously against three powerful parties that lost and they have won and they've formed a coalition with the numbers. But I would think that Fretland's performance, because some people were predicting a much bigger wipeout of Fretland, I would think that Fretland's performance will be a factor for unity in the AMP. I really do. They did quite well. The PD uh, party has not joined the AMP either. You, we've seen the, the smaller party split and one of them is now sitting with the with Fretland and PD in the opposition. So their numbers have increased slightly as well. There's enough of an opposition there to, I think, keep the, the AMP on the straight and narrow. I agree with Sue. They do have very different development visions in the party. Uh, and in fact, uh, quite 
quite uh, importantly contrasting in terms of Timor's future, the sort of arguments made by Talmatan Ruak around basic health and education and agricultural expenditure against the big project visions of Shinana Guzmao that pump priming the economy to, to boost Timor into a middle income country. They're very different visions. So there are grounds for the government to um, have serious disagreements on basic development issues. But I think the performance of Fretland in the election will will see, will see them uh, unified. And I, I wouldn't expect to see an election soon. Oh, that's a reasonably optimistic assessment. So final word to you, Sarah. Do you feel optimistic that we won't be back here again in yeah, 2019? I'd ask some same so. questions. I think so. And I guess because of watching Shanana closely uh, for a long time now and his ability to end up on top and, <laughs> yeah. and get his way <laughs> is quite astounding. Um and the fact that he has given the prime ministership to Tamatan Rook, who has this, I think, more generous vision, um, is an indication that hopefully he will let Tamatan Rook run that side of the government and he will have that more strategic role and he will continue to do his job in making sure Australia uh, uh, is pushed back as far as the oil negotiations go. He's taken that on as a personal, his own personal kind of war to make sure that Timor gets their national sort of inheritance in a sense. So I, I think it looks quite good with the with the, the sort of alliance as it is. I don't think we'll be back having an, a, another election in a, in a year's time, no. Sarah, Sue, Michael, thank you so much to all three of you for coming in and sharing your insights into what's happening in the very complex environment of, of Timor-Leste. And it's great to end on that rather optimistic note. I think, Sue, like you, all of us listening are hoping that the future is a bright one for Timor-Leste. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Professor Michael Leach, Dr. Sue Ingram and Dr. Sarah Niner there uh, helping us pick over some of the big issues facing Timor-Leste at the moment. And I've still got Sharon with me for the post-pod roundup. There's a lot we've got to talk about, but first, what did you take away from the discussion there, Sharon? I thought that was just a fantastic discussion, Martin. What incredibly deep insight that the three of them have, you know, based on years of experience of working in Timor. Look, I think the thing that I took away from that was the optimism that all three of them felt. And that's such a positive thing. We often hear very negative stories about Timor-Leste. Um, but here we have glimmers of hope, you know, cause for real optimism about the future. I did think the challenges that they identified, um, each of them in quite different ways, around the model of development was really interesting and this tension between the kind of the big picture nation building based on infrastructure or the kind of more decentralised um, approach that really connects with people much more powerfully and the challenges of catering to this really large group of young people who rightly have high aspirations about what their future might be. Those numbers with the young people were incredible, weren't they? It is. It really is incredible. And, you know, reflected in, in other countries um, in similar socioeconomic positions to Timor, but real challenges around that, particularly when young people receive messages not just from within their own societies but globally about what they can aspire to. But, um, but, you know, that, that, that message of optimism, I think, is really important for us all to take away um, and to shape the way in which we think about Timor-Leste. 
So, Sharon, I want to talk about some of the gender issues that were raised today, because it reminds me of a Policy Forum article that was published recently by Ramesh Thakur from here at Crawford School of Public Policy, and it was titled, VIP Culture is a Blight on India's Democracy. And in it, he talks about the culture of impunity that lies behind India's rape epidemic, which has been very widely reported. Do you think that the gender issues that Sarah highlighted today that are present in Timor-Leste are quite common across the Asia-Pacific region? Yeah, look, that article of of Ramesh's is such a powerful article um, and a really insightful article, very difficult to read, but a very powerful one. I think some of the issues that he raises are quite specific to the Indian context, um, to historical, cultural, social factors in India. But I think these issues of violence against women play out right across the Asia-Pacific region, but also more broadly, you know, globally, um, violence against women um, and the gender attitudes that allow that violence, or at least are silent around that violence, you know, play out globally. I think we need to be careful not to assume that exactly the same problems occur across very different contexts, or that the same solutions are going to work across very different contexts. But what I think we we take from both Ramesh's um, article and from the things that Sarah said today is the the prevalence of gender-based violence and the way in which cultural attitudes and appeals to the position of particular men within society, the way um, that allows for violence to continue um, and to be covered up. I think the the story that Sarah told about the Minister for Health or the, the, the previous Minister for Health who is likely to be in that position again, having been charged with domestic violence, is just such a sobering example of the way in which gender-based based violence is not taken seriously. So while I think the contexts are very different, the importance of really addressing issues of violence against women is a, a priority issue right across the Asia-Pacific region. And on a related topic, and I've got to say I love this part of the podcast because I get to pick your brains about all sorts of very interesting and topical issues. And we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. And we've just heard this morning that uh, President Donald Trump has withdrawn the United States from the UN Human Rights Council. And it's happened at, as the uh, international community is marking World Refugee Day. Um, What are these two events, the international efforts to promote human rights values on the one hand and the US rejection of the United Nations human rights institutions on the other? Tell us, do you think, Sharon, about the level of support for human rights around the world right now? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, it's hard to think about um, World Refugee Day and not think of those particularly powerful images coming out of the United States, you know, those deeply disturbing images of children being ripped away from their parents' arms, you know, that, that powerful image of the toddler just despairing as she cries as she's taken away from her mother. You know, these, these images are, are really hard to see. And, of course, there are equally awful images of the plight of refugees around the world in, in different countries. In terms of the United States withdrawal from the Human Rights Council, 
Well, I guess it's it's part of a pattern. So I would say the United States has withdrawn from the Human Rights Council before. Um, the United States also withdrew from the International Labour Organization back in the 1970s. So the, these politics are not new. Um, and of course, under the Trump administration, we saw the withdrawal of funding from UNFPA um, about 12 or 12 months ago. Um, so the pattern of, of, I guess, the United States' difficult relationship with multinational agency, multilateral agencies um, and particularly the Trump administration's um, hostility towards those agencies is, is nothing new. In terms of what this means, I think, for, for commitment to human rights around the world, well, it's, it's a little mixed. I mean, I think in some places the withdrawal from those institutions is applauded as we see a rise of nationalism, a rise of populism. But I think there's also a, a perhaps louder voices that still support commitment to those international human rights institutions. Certainly when the United States withdrew funding from UNFPA, we saw other countries, particularly in Europe, step into the breach. Australia also stepped into the breach and provided additional funding to ensure that that critical work of UNFPA, which is literally around saving the lives of women, um, was able to continue. So I think we would see this and hope that we will see other countries stepping into that void and voicing support for the international human rights framework and expressing support for the UN Human Rights Council. I mean, the politics of human rights globally are really fraught and there are, there are problems around the processes and the institutions of um, promoting human rights internationally. So we know there are challenges to be met. But I think we also know that without those international human rights institutions, the world will be a much worse place and the rights of the most vulnerable will be you know, in a much more precarious position. So it's, it's a shame, but it's not unpredicted when we see the Trump administration behaving in this way. But I think the hope is that other countries step in and express stronger support for the international human rights framework and for the council in particular. I mean, Trump's decision is perhaps, as you say, not entirely unexpected. This is an administration that doesn't shy away from letting ideology guide uh, guide policy. Uh, and indeed, uh, its withdrawal from the Human Rights Council is far from its first act of diplomacy to raise international eyebrows. On this week's National Security Podcast, Chris Farnham talks to Zach Cooper from the American Enterprise Institute about Trump's diplomacy from the recent G7 summit to the, the US grand strategy in the Indo-Pacific. So for those who missed the memo, this is a brand new podcast series produced by Policy Forum uh, in conjunction with the ANU National Security College. If you haven't heard it yet, and are at all into international relations, defence and security issues, I would highly recommend taking a listen. I'll leave a link in the show notes for this episode. Sharon, on the last podcast, you spoke with pod host Maya about the Russia World Cup. I was benched for that one. I was a substitute, <laughs> uh, not called onto the field of play for that. But uh, have you enjoyed the tournament in the week since? Well, when I spoke to Maya, we, we talked a little bit about the 
the politics and the fraught politics around um, the World Cup. But putting that to one side, yeah, I've enjoyed the tournament enormously so far. Um, I thought Australia did a fantastic job against France and that stands us in good stead going forward. Um, I also think it's been a great tournament so far for goalkeepers. You, you know I have a bit of a passion around you goalkeeping. Say this, you say this as a member of the Goalkeepers <laughs> Union. Absolutely. So I think, you know, the, the Egyptian keeper, the Icelandic keeper, Matt Ryan in that game against France, you know, have all played well. And Ospina for Colombia last night pulled off a couple of stellar saves. So great tournament for goalkeepers. I have to say, I uh, really enjoyed the podcast last week. There were lots of fabulous interviewees and plenty of meaty subjects to pick over. And one of the issues that was covered in the podcast was whether the World Cup would do anything to repair Russia's international reputation. Do you think that's changed in the week, the, the sort of answers that we gave there? Has it done anything to fix this international reputation? Look, I suspect not. Um, I think at the moment we are in the, the height of World Cup fever. And so, you know, it's the football that is paramount and people are watching the football, or at least football fans are watching the football, you know, in a very positive light. Um what happens beyond the World Cup, I think, is is another story entirely. We did see at the in the early days of the the World Cup, you know, protests around the treatment of LGBTI communities um, in in Russia. Uh, we saw some some protests uh, uh, around um, freedom of freedom to protest um, in Russia, but we also saw the introduction of um, regulations to prevent protests during the World Cup. So. I don't think a lot's changed in this week, excepting that the football has now taken over. Um, but in terms of the, the politics and the reputational issues, I think they will all be there very much as they were before the World Cup when we get to the 15th of July. All right, so my final question about football, I'm going to put you uh, put you on the spot here. Who's going to win, Sharon? Well, I said last week that it was going to be France, and I've been surprised at how tight a lot of the results have been. I think I'll still stay with France, but, you know, Australia held them to 2-1. Who knows? Could it be us? So you're thinking Australia might win? Well, I think it's probably more likely to be France, but you never know. (laughs) I suspect it's probably going to be Germany. Even after a very slow start, you can never rule out Germany. But we will see, won't we? I would never want to rule out Germany either. And, you know, we saw what happened last World Cup. So let's wait and see. (laughs) So now's the part of the podcast where we highlight some of our uh, favourite comments from our Policy Forum audience. Sharon, do you remember those strange reports from Cuba last year and more recently from China about US embassy staff in both countries suffering mysterious brain injuries? Well, in the last few weeks, we've published a couple of pieces on the topic of the alleged sonic attacks, and I say that with sort of air quotes around it. The first piece was by Robert Bunker, and it was titled Sounding the Alarm on Directed Energy Attacks. And we have a comment from Drace who wrote, this is exotic stuff we're seeing in use and is indicative of the movement of war away from kinetic stroke public modalities into covert stroke deniable activities and purposes. This is the war of all against all, quote unquote, uh, we are seeing inaugurated. There are no longer front lines, battlefields or innocent bystanders. Everyone everywhere is a target. And if you listen to this and are pretty sceptical, the second article might be more up your alley. This week we published a piece on the alleged attacks by Timothy Layton titled Hearing Things. And on Twitter, Melissa Chan writes, 
The world only has a handful of experts who specifically study ultrasound waves as they travel through air and how that impacts humans. Professor Layton weighs in on the mysteries out of Cuba and China. It is a very interesting piece. Do you have any thoughts about uh, uh, directed energy, sonic attacks, Sharon? This is way beyond my expertise, to be honest, Martin, and way beyond issues that I've, I've given a great deal of thought to. So no, not really. But I guess the point that I would make is just what an informed audience we have. You know, some really interesting comments there from Melissa. And we always get such interesting comments from our listeners. So my, my only comment would be keep those comments coming and keep the conversations going. i got to say, I, I'm, t- I'm totally with you. The quality of comments and questions that we get is absolutely outstanding. We really appreciate everyone getting in contact. Those people who get in contact to uh, give us their questions to put on the podcast, you make our lives a lot easier in terms of framing up these interviews. And those people who leave us comments on social media too, Uh, Really appreciate the feedback. And you can give us your feedback by reaching out to us on email, where we are podcast at policyforum.net, on Twitter, where we are apps policy forum, or on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Finally, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. It's a small gesture. It's only going to take you 30 seconds or so, but it's something that will go a really long way for us in helping get the word out about the series. Well, that's all for us today, uh, but we'll be back next week with more. So from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.